Now, this week we're talking about a film whose title I often get slightly wrong, but I believe it's I Woke Up Early the Morning I Died. You're wrong. I Woke Up Early the Day I Died. Yes. <laughs> okay, uh, almost. I Woke Up Early the Day I Died. Now, this is very interesting because um, for reasons of ostensibly of quality checking, but in fact just out of sheer narcissism, I've listened to the two previous podcasts we've recorded. So I've discovered how this film came about, the fact that we're talking about this film came about, the reason you lent it to me. We were talking about um, Thriller, the film Thriller. And in the course of that discussion, I invoked the name of David Lynch and said some other things about the weirdness of the movie that was under discussion. And you said, oh, you must see... (laughs) <laughs> this Billy Zane film, uh, and uh, no one's ever said that before. <laughs> and I, all I could remember afterwards is that there's something retro about it. So I thought, oh, it's some kind of, it's a black and white film. It's deliberately retro, but it wasn't. It's not black and white. In fact, it's very strikingly shot in color. What it is is it's silent. It's, it's when I say it's a silent movie, I mean it's sort of a silent movie. It's free of dialogue. That's right. Uh, although when they're watching telly uh, in the hotel. You hear the dialogue on the screen going on. You also get the public information film at the beginning. Well, that's right. Yeah. Sets up his hearing, which I only oh. heard in English quite recently because up till now I'd always had a, a German VHS. No, which sets up his. He- oh yeah, because there's no. We're jumping straight into this. He has some strange kind of pathology that certain sounds set him off. Yeah. Right, but let's let's let's. <laughs> draw way, way, way back to the beginning. So what you said was there's this extraordinary weird film, Silent, uh, with Billy Zane in it, which is based on an un- previously unfilmed Edward screenplay. Yes. Now, the Edward thing... Okay, so I've seen the movie now, and it's extraordinary. And I think that they really missed a trick. Because you, what got you showing me this movie was the mention of the name David Lynch. So what the people who made this film should have done, because it sank without a trace. I think you said it's not even legally available to be shown. It's not, but that's not entirely because of the film. It's because of the rights issues. Yeah. So the company that financed it went under, yep. and the film rights got lost in legal kerfuffle. Legal limbo. And it only ever got released on VHS purely by accident. I mean, that was pulled pretty quickly. And the, VHS, uh, the DVD release that was available in Germany was not an official release. So, again... Yeah, it's a very hard film to get hold of, and it it's just it sank without a trace, but not for want of trying. I th- I think that they could have had a small art house hit with this movie. What they needed to do was invite David Lynch to a very nice dinner, get him very drunk, show him the film, and say, "We want you to put your name on this film as an executive producer. You don't have to do anything. We'll give you money and a share of the profits." And then you release the film as David Lynch presents. I woke up early the day I died, based on an Edward screenplay. Because then it would attract people like, well, it's a really weird movie. And this would be a way of making it, uh, making people, uh, giving them some idea of what to expect. Because it's such a strange movie. And they might actually go to see it if you contextualise it like that. But they didn't. And it disappeared without a trace. But I am so pleased that we're doing this series of podcasts because I never would have seen this movie before. I mean, very, very few people have. I really liked it, I, but it's it's a very strange film. So, uh, are, no, How were you with Edward um, prior to this? I just, I'm not sure I've ever seen anything except clips of his films and no. the, the, and the, um, the Tim Burton movie about yeah. him, which I liked. Which was very good, but it's not, it, it's quite a, a happy 
version, of, and it's also very fictionalised. It's an upbeat version of his terrible his life. Bloody awful life. Um, his films are almost completely unwatchable. Um, that's why you've only ever seen clips. I don't think anyone yeah. can sit through Plan 9 from Outer Space from start to finish and enjoy it. Yeah. it. They're just not good. And he's the absolute epitome of no one sets out to make a bad film. He really didn't set out to make bad films. He just couldn't, he, did, he couldn't do it. That was the problem. But I think the script that they're working from here, assuming, which it seems to be completely untouched um, from you know, his original script to what's reached the screen in their film, you, it's a good script. Well, we we have no idea how closely they hewed to the script or not. Well, my feeling is that they include the script on screen yeah, which quite often. To. Yeah, and kind of I suggest there's a, a slavish adherence to the text on this one. Mm. I think they went... I don't know, but whatever. So the result is very strange. Mm. So you have this great title sequence with fantastic kind of uh, new wave music on it. Was it uh, uh, Jesus something? Do you, do you know any of these songs? I do. Um, the majority of the music, most of it is made for the film. And most of it is co-written by Billy Zane. Oh, well, okay, part. well, that's very interesting. But, um, there are quite a few songs on there as well, which uh, have since had releases. I would love to get a soundtrack for this film. So it begins very in your face with this very sort of choppy, partly animated kind of uh, title sequence, which is really, I loved. Uh, it really got me into it. And then, so what happens then is you get this close-up of this really phony-looking prosthetic arm as somebody's getting an injection, and it's a totally fake injection. And what it is, it's a completely unexplained blonde bombshell is being given uh, a covert injection, feel free to correct me at any point, in a sanitarium. And the, the nurse who is giving her the injection, as the nurse totters out in high heels, we begin to get the... <laughs> have the suspicion this isn't somebody who normally wears high heels. It turned out to be Billy Zane in the nurse's yes. uniform, cross-dressing, uh, which was a, an Edward thing, I believe. Yes. So having given this unnamed, unknown blonde this kind of sinister injection, he flees the hospital and then gets out of drag, out of his nurse's drag, by robbing a clothesline. Yes. Uh, and uh, then he's, we're into the movie. I, so that's that sounds like an incoherent account. <laughs> See the film. So and as the movie begins, he's in uh, the the clothes he's going to wear for the rest of the film, which is sort of uh, just a, a wide collared shirt, a jacket, and some flared trousers of memory suit, and still in his high heels. Then he does a swapperoo because there's this late night clothes store open, which actually in Los Angeles could really be a thing. I could imagine this happening, and he. He does this swap of his high heels for a pair of men's shoes and he leaves the high heels hanging on the rack outside the store. And the store owner comes out and he looks at the high heels and obviously he's a shoe fetishist. He sort of grabs them hungrily. But the thing, the reason I'm mentioning that is the guy who plays the shoe shop owner is great. He's got this wonderful... Do you know who it is? Well, I know Bud Court is in this movie. Yes, that's him. But that is him. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad because he's only on the screen for a moment, but it's wonderful because you you totally believe him as this kind of um furtive pathetic uh yet ecstatic kind of shoe fetishist who's just hit the jackpot <laughs> it's something you realize very early on the film is chock full of cameos yeah um, there are some very surprising names in this film yeah but they are silent movie cameos because if you're going to be effective in this film you've got to be effective without dial yeah. and that's why that bud court thing so early in the movie was so great i thought how charming I thought this really works. It's really amusing and it's kind of touching. I like that when he runs back in with the shoes, he also takes a, a massive mannequin as well. Just 
to complete his plan, whatever he's got planned in there. For the rest of the evening, yes. <laughs> <laughs> his evening's sorted out. I think he flips the sign too. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, but it's just really touching and charming and funny and a really great little piece of acting in, in a split second. So that's sort of what this movie's about. And the pace never lets up. From the point where he escapes from the hospital onwards, it's a very fast-paced film. And even within that fast pacing, you've got these little comic moments, which comes immediately after the shot, which is where he's hungry and he goes to the hot dog cellar, which is one of my favourite scenes. Just Billy Zane's visual comedy. Oh, I, I agree. He, he's a, the thing, what people need to understand is this is sort of a silent movie comedy, so it's all about the physicality of the yeah. actors. And I think he's up there with Chaplin. Yeah, he's really borrowing a lot from Chaplin, Keaton, all of them. But um, he's really, really good physical comedian. He's brilliant. I was tremendously impressed with him. His face as that guy is taking so long to make the hot dog. And his yeah. barely disguised irritation at how long it's taking. Um, he, I mean, he's a revelation in this. He's very good. Yeah, I mean, this is why I'm a fan of Billy Zane. <laughs> Not many people are, but my God. <laughs> There's more going on there than you think. So I actually jotted that down. Ooh, silent movie acting. Oh yeah, yeah. The music. The uh, the one of the great strengths of this movie is the wild music, which is really uh, I've written wild music, well used. Uh, so on top of that, it's the most extraordinary color photography because it's it's not it's very kind of vivid. Uh, they've obviously done treated it in some way to make it kind of slightly harsh and retro looking. But when I say harsh, not not harsh, but just intensely colored. It is. Um, I think what they've done is raised certain colours and desaturated others yeah. and given it that sort of Super 8 look to yeah. bring it down. It, it looks like a uh, an earlier, cheaper film stock format yeah. with garish colours, which are great. And there's a scene where a black car, shiny black car, backs up so that it's in, uh, providing the background for a bright red fire hydrant. It's just stunning. <laughs> it's a strangely well-shot film, given that the director has never done anything before or since. Well, the, the director, whose, whose name is a rather unusual Greek-sounding name, I thought he was just a pseudonym for Billy Zane. I think it is too, but we'll never know. But you see, this is, this is where you let the side down badly, Matt, because you, you're the guy I'm looking to to tell me all of the factual underpinnings of we these were things. We were so close to interviewing him. Um, I mean, this was a big aim. We were going to do a yeah. book a while back on film and we'd got in touch and we'd agreed that he would do an interview and then he just went completely silent mm. on us and we never got to do it. Well, do try again. Well, do you know, I'd love to... It occurred to me he must be on social media somewhere so we just have to shout out Tell him that, we're, that we're doing a, a, a podcast, an ecstatic podcast about how cool this movie is and we'd <laughs> love to talk to him. He must be proud of this one because, yeah, he was a producer of this one as well. Yeah, so it's his show. So what happens then? Uh, we, he's got rid of his high heels. He's had a hot dog. He's done some great silent co comedy acting. And then he robs, well, I'm going to say a bank. It's not a bank. It's a savings and loan, yeah. which is a particularly American kind of thing. And again, this is a great comic sequence where he goes in. There's a man and a woman behind the desk. Uh, Billy Zane, where did he get the gun? Does he get the gun in this scene? Does he take it from the, the savings and loan guy? Anyway, he's acquired a gun uh, and he ends up shooting the sa savings and loan chap down. I think he might have taken the gun from him. But uh, we have no idea why he's... No, we have no idea why he injected the blonde at the beginning, let alone why he wants to rob the savings and loan. But this is... is, is so far as there's any plot to this movie, this is crucial because he's about to get a bunch of money. But what I wanted to say is the savings and loan guy 
does this fantastic silent movie overacting. Well, it's just a brilliant little performance because, like his face, as Billy Zane's pointing the gun at him, you, you cut to this guy and like you look at his his face, uh, torn between terror and uh, fighting back. It's just great. Totally, things are all over the place. Some scenes are played differently to others. That one feels like it's from a John Waters film. It's very over the top, but it works great. It I, does. I, I suppose it helps that it's silent. But it's this terrific little face-off. It's sort of like a, a, you know, a Warner Brothers cartoon <laughs> rather than reality. So mm. Billy Zane shoots this guy, poor guy, steals the money, and the rest of the movie is about um, his attempts to hold on to the money that he's stolen, which quite soon he'll lose, and it gets really freaky. But he all the way through it, he also has this condition, which is like as we mentioned before, it's like an exaggerated misophonia. He's intensely irritated by loud noises to the point where they seem to cause him screaming well pain. He, he he is at points in the film but at other points it just doesn't seem to matter no um it gives him a psychosis that kicks him off onto certain every time he takes an irrational step it tends to be because of the noises um he seems very unlucky but the photography i remember there's this bit down by uh, this boardwalk and it's just a series of squares of light coming through the uh, the 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 structure and Billy Zane's walking through the squares of light. It's just a stunning shot. It's like the opening of the prisoner. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, he's going the other way. Um, so I, I don't know if it's worth synopsizing the, the film because it's just a bunch of bizarre stuff happens. But quite often they have this device that you mentioned earlier where they just superimpose on the screen some text straight out of the, the script yeah. to, to either explain or underline the action. And we discover that the Billy Zane character is called the thief, yeah. even though he doesn't steal anything until the savings and loan. So, well, we don't know what he's doing in the sanatorium. He could have stolen anything. <laughs> well, it's, this isn't a very well explained movie. Uh, just to give an example, he goes to the cemetery where there's a bunch of cultists uh, <laughs> venerating this open casket with some kind of um, corpse of a, presumably a cult, cult leader inside. And you're thinking hang on, why is the casket open in the middle of this graveyard? And it turns out that they're digging up all the, the coffins to transfer them. But it still doesn't make sense. What makes even less sense is Billy Zane decides to hide his briefcase full of money in the coffin because like, that's going to be a smart move. Well, he doesn't hide it. He's doesn't he? surprised and he drops it and it goes in there. There's that struggle. And then he wakes up unconscious in the grave and has a flashback of where, what where happened to the case. Who, he can't is, find the case. who is he struggling with? I don't recall. Because I, I don't... A I, lot my, happens in every minute my, of this film. My memory is that he just he just stashes the suitcase there, the briefcase there, because some cops turn up. No, it's not intentional, but he drops it. He, he drops it in there, not deliberately. Uh, well, listen, folks, if, if this sounds like we're not tracking, wait till you hear the rest. There's a sort of a, a cemetery keeper... Ron Perlman plays a kind of cemetery caretaker. Who lives in a big gold pyramid. Yes, there's a big gold pyramid in the <laughs> middle of the, the graveyard, and this is where Ron lives. And when he's off duty, he plays the bagpipes, <laughs> which led to one of Matt's best gags ever, because I was just sending him an email, giving him an update of where I was in the film, and I said, Ron Perlman is playing the bagpipes in a pyramid, to which you it messaged me back. You said it's like the sort of sentence that awakens sleeper agents. Yeah, yeah. Best, <laughs> best gag ever. Well done. But yeah, so Ron Perlman plays the bagpipes. I will say one thing for myself. I did quite near the end work out that the bagpipes were where the money's concealed. I've just let loose a massive spoiler. 
because that's where the money is hidden. He spends, our hero spends the rest of the movie looking for the money and indeed killing everybody who might possibly have the money. I thought it was under the pillow. Yep. Because um, he kills Ron Perlman yep. and he's left on the bed. Yep. However, as you probably got it from this, is when the bagpipes keep making a little noise as Sane's trying to leave. Yeah. And it's almost like they're shouting at him. <laughs> it's like, you know, over here. Yeah. Um, but he just doesn't get it. Well, I didn't, in fairness, I didn't get it till very near the end, but I thought that's the only logical place for the money to turn out to be in Lampolders. Okay. And then, so he now has a, a list of the mourners who are attending the, the, the cult leader's coffin. It's a fantastic group of people. Well, it is a fantastic group of people who, who he's basically going to kill. <laughs> he, Do you know what it reminded me of? You know in Tim Burton's Ed Wood film, you've yeah. got the funeral for Bela Lugosi with all those people standing around the coffin, just the weirdest <laughs> collection of people you've ever seen. Like a Charles Adams yeah. cartoon. It's basically that. <laughs> it's that same bizarre yeah. group of people. Well, there's even this very tall, uh, bald, skeletal-looking guy who looks like one of the um, sort of... Plan Nine. Film, I doesn't don't it? know exactly how to pronounce his name, but that's Carol Struckian, right. who um, he was in. Uh, he was Lurch in the Adams Family films. Oh, okay. Um, but he was also in uh, Star Trek: Next Generation quite a lot. Well, it's a fabulous cast, and Billy Zane is one. Of, I'm just going to go through my notes, and, and okay, so I woke I woke up early. Extraordinary color photography, the red fire hydrant in the black car. Yes, silent movie acting, wild music, well used, monkey screams in the cemetery. <laughs> Uh, that was when album I was. Title. It's because yeah, it's, it's another it's another one to get the sleeper agents up and running. Uh, at that point, I was still beginning to piece together what the silent convention was because you do get other sounds, but in fact, you get pretty much any sound except dialogue, as, as you as you said. All the smart play, all the small part players are superb, superb, uh, singular. The reluctant gun battle in the savings and loan was great. Oh yeah, the way the typing on the screen tells you things you couldn't know otherwise, because it's a bit of a chaotic, chaotic film and not a great screenplay. You can tell from the screenplay that it's the fact that it suddenly has chunks of plot like that means that it hasn't paid out the action properly. These sort of un undigested lumps of plot. Well, we have to assume. I mean, this is—it's not explicit in the script that this has to appear on screen. The text from the script—it doesn't say caption. It's just a stage direction. So we have to assume that Ed Wood had some idea of how he was going to express this if oh, he ever yeah. got to film it. I see. So so he didn't have to break it down because he was going to film it himself. Okay, This is their decision sense. rather than his no, that uh, make, yeah, as a writer. That makes sense. I've written, Zane is a great physical comedian. He really is. And uh, I've written Like One Eye, which is the, the film uh, thriller, also known as They Call... They Call Her One Eye. They Call Her One Eye. I've written, that, like that film, this is disturbingly primitive uh, and impressively wayward. Darkly off kilter. There you go. Get you? <laughs> <laughs> Something for the DVD box when it ever gets released. Uh, let's see. Did it do something about... One of the other fantastic Billy Zane moments of, in terms of that physical comedy is when he sat on the back of the bus. I love that. Then he finds the piece of licorice. So funny. <laughs> I, I was dying to talk to you about that because he's sort of just sort of sitting there, sort of like bored and he, he's feeling at the crack in the seat and he pulls out this piece of red licorice and he just starts eating. He's wonderful in this But film. then as he leans over and looks out the window and the bus goes around the corner and it yeah. pulls him across the bus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's full of this inventive stuff and he's, uh, he's beyond sending yourself up. He's just really understands the possibilities of being this clown and it's, and I'm not a great fan of slap, slapstick normally, but I just loved it in this. And then you've got, um, as I say, you've got the continuing 
cast that just keep appearing. Oh, I couldn't remember at, at the point I was making this. Now, I couldn't remember the name of the actress, so I just wrote she slept with Madonna. I know oh, that. I know that doesn't narrow it down too much. <laughs> it is yeah. Sandra Bernhardt whom yeah. I called Sarah. Yeah, but she was. Uh, yeah, she was good in it. I mean, she kills her. She's actually surprisingly um, restrained in that, even though she's playing a stripper. Um, for her, that's quite a relaxed performance. Yeah. So basically, he's working the way through this list of more. He's a list of professional mourners. And he's working his way through it because he thinks one of them has got his $14,000 and he's killing them as he finds them. Well, it's not as dark as it sounds because you don't see all of the, the killings. I say here, Zane has a Chaplin-esque genius for physical comedy. Yeah, every now and then he just... Uh, one of the sequences I really like is um, Tippi Hedron, who's playing the deaf old lady. In the, who lives in a lighthouse. Yeah, and he's trying to rob the house, but he knows she can't hear. And he's just making, he's just crashing through the place while she's well, doing d- other things. D- but she d- spots him almost immediately. Oh, because there's a sign outside that says she's deaf, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I like that. It's just this chaos but behind her. I know, but the, here's his modus operandi. He thinks that this woman might have the money because she was one of the mourners yeah. near the coffin where he somehow ended up stashing the money. So he goes to her house. He walks to the doors of her house and his search for the money begins thus. He starts pulling pictures off the wall and tearing the backs off them because that's where the money would be hidden but this is not this is a man who's just escaped from a sanatorium he's not acting with a full case of cards here <laughs> oh i just i just realized something oh this would be good Go <laughs> i mean you probably you probably way ahead of me but the woman in the bed at the beginning is the nurse and he's overpowered her and yes, taken her he's uniform. Taken her uniform, yes. So he was in the sanitarium ah yes. but so you you knew that all along i i couldn't work out Okay. Yeah, I thought that was quite implicit. Yeah, yeah, no, so you, you couldn't work out why I couldn't work out what was going yeah. on. Okay. Well, he was definitely a patient. So, so he's an escape nut, John. Yes. Yeah, and he's overpowered the nurse and taken her uniform, hence the tottering around the high heel. Okay, this all makes perfect sense now. <laughs> I just thought like he was this weird cross-dressing nurse who was, you know, this was part of his evening routine of uh, drugging people against their will. Okay, no, I. all right, great. It was a bit of journey of discovery for me. So, so we know that he's not playing with the full deck from the off, is yeah. what you're saying. Okay, that makes... yeah. So, yeah, he is crazy. But I think that makes him more dangerous as well. So when he's robbing the savings alone, yeah, this is a guy who probably will shoot them if they annoy him. We, yeah, I guess we don't know that. I, I've written about... Getting back to Tippy Hedron, I've written the deaf lady kicks his ass. <laughs> she does. And I've also written the photography is often exquisite, like in the seaside scenes at the lighthouse. Yeah, all around there. It looks like day for night, but I don't think it is. Yeah, it's um, got that strange kind of intense, almost like storm light, the light you get just before a big storm. I suspect it's a filter rather yeah. than filming at night. I've, I've written the uh, the use of colour is fabulous. They're not very subtle with the birds, though, are they, for Tippy Hedron? Oh, I see, that was what they're getting at. Yeah, uh, yeah that's a bit... Poor, bit... poor woman can't escape it. <laughs> no, but she was really good. I thought she was excellent yeah. in it, yeah. And that sequence where he's chasing around the lighthouse, that was a bit, reminded me a bit of The Fog by John Carpenter. Yeah, possibly. Mm. I don't watch The Fog much. I should watch that again. It, I that no, you shouldn't. Time. It's not a very good film. It's so disappointing. Flattened at the Mountains of Murder, I don't think I... Oh, the no, thing no. about The Fog, and this yeah. is a massive detour, sorry, folks, <laughs> is that he'd just come off movies like Assault on Precinct 13 and Halloween I guess so he, he had a really strong run of films and you, you know I'm totally up for a movie about uh, phantom pirates coming back from the dead out of the fog but it wasn't a good movie just disappointing I don't think I've seen it all the way through well that speaks for itself I'm gonna 
Yeah. I've watched oh, look, I've watched Escape from LA. I'm gonna watch anything that John Carter does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've also written Christina Ritchie is a chubby temptress. She's fantastic. Uh, I I really like Christina Ritchie and I really like Christina Ritchie from that time. Yeah. It was roughly the same time she did things like Buffalo sixty six where she was at the height of her powers, I think. Yeah. Well, what happens is he checks in, our hero, I use the term loosely, checks into a seedy hotel, and there's this um, uh, woman who, who's in fact Vampira, isn't yes. she? Yeah. She's the Vampira. Vampira, for those who don't know, was a, a horror host. In other words, somebody who was the who hosted a horror TV show. This is something that I don't think you had in the UK, but I grew up with it in Canada. There was something called the Chiller Thriller. So every Saturday night there'd be a horror movie, and often these things were... Um, uh, compared, i.e. hosted by um, a personality who would dress up. And in Los Angeles, I think it was, the local TV station, there was Vampira, who was this um, vampiric-looking chick who used to introduce the horror movies. And who was a friend of Edward, who was in the Edward film as well, as a character. And so, this was th- this was really her, sitting yeah. in the lobby of the hotel. The last thing she did. Oh. Well, not literally, I don't think. I, mean, <laughs> I think she made it out of the studio. But. And... Uh, Anyway, so he checks into the hotel and she sort of eyes him up and then she summons... Uh, I like to think that Christina Ritchie is her daughter. <laughs> well, I was thinking that as well. It does seem to be that they're pimping their daughter out yeah. to the rooms. Yeah, yeah. So they, and they send this the, um, the buxom Christina Ritchie to his room and there ensues this really interesting kind of sequence where she tries to vamp him. But I have to say, I was kind of hypnotised by the art direction of that room which is this incredible that spinning fan that's and the colours in the room are really extraordinary I thought the and this is again where I felt that it was very Lynch-like where the uh, the the production design is very important and very strange but also again going back to Thriller her eyes are very effective in that sequence she's got very good and she acts well with her eyes. She's got a lot yeah, going on there. It, what is striking about it, this? Again, you get to the end of this film and you forget that there's been no dialogue. So yeah. a lot happens in these films and these scenes and a lot is communicated between people but with no dialogue. Well, it turns out that silent movie acting is not a lost art because you had all yeah. these young actors who were really doing a, a wonderful job, really nailing it in this film. Uh, and it's a weird movie. It's a comedy. It's completely... Not to complete, like how anybody thought they could turn a penny making this film, I don't know. Well, they didn't, no, but I mean, they did need to do David Lynch Presents. I think that that would have covered the budget if they'd done something like that. It did hit a couple of film festivals, and Good. it was absolutely panned. Is that your pizza? Okay, so we just I've lost an irreplaceable chunk of tape. It's not tape, solid state memory. We just recorded half an hour fascinating chat, which we didn't record. Yeah. Because my neighbour dropped by and rang the doorbell and we turned the tape off and then we turned it back on again. Turned the tape off. <laughs> People call them tapes. You know, I don't know what else you call it. Well, I still do that with TV. I'll tape it. Yeah. It's, but, uh, it, it's an extinct technology, terminology. So, normally, at, at this point, in any proper podcast about so-called cult films we would talk about the background of the film how it came about um the factual details of it its origins its provenance but we know nothing no. we know absolutely nothing so instead i'm going to ask you how you personally discovered this film how it began how it came into your life 
like most films, um, I used to go to college in Croydon uh, at the Brit School. and Studying the, film? Studying film theory, no less, and writing for film and film and TV. Look where it got me. Um, it got you this podcast, <laughs> what are you complaining about? And in Croydon at the time, uh, there were about eight or nine video shops on the high street. It was great. You had things like um, Virgin back then. You had uh, Playhouse. Loads of places. Just to be clear, we're talking about VHS cassettes. Yes, cassettes. Spools of tape. Yeah, brown tape. I mean, I used to go there with um, a couple of people from college, but mainly uh, a chap by the name of Mark, who uh, I still watch films with now. He even had a laser disc player, so we had ac- access oh, to a lot of things. So, so you were into you were into des- the first disc technology as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we were we were used to watching films twenty minutes at a time. <laughs> oh, is that where the chapter divisions are on a laser disc? Yeah, it depends how it's encoded. I'm trying to remember. I think CAV was when it was only twenty minutes, but then you get better quality. But the point we're getting at is this was the <laughs> dawn of home uh, film watching. It was, and. This was mid-90s, so there was a stack of second-hand VHS out there. If you went to uh, charity shops, not that there were that many at the time, but you would always find piles and piles of videos. And the best place in Croydon at the time was a place called B-Notes. Which I know is a, a place to buy second-hand vinyl. It was. It was the Rare place. Records. It was just it's amazing. It's a cool store because it's on many... It's like a, a narrow building with a lot of floors, right? Yeah, uh, three floors of records, and then the top floor was mainly film with a diner that was never, ever open. Yeah, well, yes, it was like one of those 50s-style diners with the, you know, the, the, uh, the counter and the, uh, the stools, and, and they would serve milkshakes and burgers if they'd ever been opened, kind of affair. And their, their film department had no uh, sections, so it was just, just stacks totally of tapes. Totally random? Yeah, so you would just dive in. And there were some labels that you eventually start to recognise just from spines, you know, if... Uh, at the time, there was a company called Forefront who were releasing widescreen spaghetti westerns on budget labels. Oh, so they're only about four ninety nine. Yeah, yeah. You get things like Texas, Texas Adio and things like that. And it was yeah four ninety nine. It was bloody widescreen. It was great. So just to be clear, you weren't looking for mainstream Hollywood fare at this time. I mean, no. We were always looking for something new or something we hadn't seen before. Which, given that we were young, was most of it. <laughs> yeah, but you, I get the sense you were deliberately looking for things off the beaten path. Yeah. Um, Mark was always looking for the elusive Charles Bronson films he didn't have. Um, one of my obsessions at the time was I was always trying to get hold of a film called Shock Treatment, which is now available everywhere. But Which the is time, the Rocky Horror sequel? Yeah. Yeah. It's not a sequel, it's an equal. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it in the cinema. Seriously, at yeah. the time. Yeah, because I was a big Rocky Horror fan, so yeah. I went trotted along to see it. I was going to suggest we do shock treatment. Jessica Harper from the Phantom of the Paradise and Suspiria. Oh my God, she is too. Yeah, yeah. she did three amazing films, um, yeah. and then not much else. Well, she did uh, Pennies from Heaven actually, the Steve Martin one. Oh, very, yeah. So that's definitely one to put on the list. And Flickers. But well. how did we get on to her? Well, because I used to keep an eye open for certain actors, certain actresses. There were some people whose oeuvres you knew, but only because I would look them up in Halliwell's film guide. I had one of those, This yes. was pre-internet. You know, there was no other way of finding it. I loved the Halliwell things. film guide. It was sort yeah. of like this Bible you had. It was a big, fat paperback, which yeah. was really useful. Like when a movie was on telly that week, you could look up the details. Actually, in those days, and we're talking about a lost golden age, when I first moved to England... Um, you could buy the Radio Times and the TV Times, which are the listings magazines. Yeah. And it would have, for every movie that was on, because there wasn't a lot in those days, because there was only three channels at yeah. the time, 
for every single movie that was on, it would list the director and the people who wrote it. I'm not sure that the TV Times did that, but the Radio Times used to list screenwriters. So I knew all these screenwriters of the golden age. And I, I, I say, oh, so that's another movie that's written by Sidney Bohm or, or whoever. And I, so it was a, Halliwell was sort of in keeping with that for in this pre-internet age, uh, for film nuts like you and me, yeah. it was the place you'd go to get the, the nutritious nuggets of information that you needed to, to begin to put together the big picture. But the other thing was Halliwell's wasn't complete. So every now and then you'd find a golden nugget you never knew existed. So, for example, if you looked up Winona Ryder in there, you'd never find the film Lupus. And I found that in Beano's once and thought, what? It's scandalous. Why is this in Halliwell's? Because you were into Winona Ryder, so that attracted you. Oh, hell yeah. I was, I, yeah. Every film right up to Age of Innocence, I think, yeah. Well, she, she has an interesting filmography, so that's... Oh, she made great stuff. Um, yeah, she's got a good eye for but, but just to drag us back to uh, I Woke Up Early the Day I Died, yeah. this, this is a neat segue because in that case, I know this because we talked about this before and failed to record it, what attracted you to this film was the fact that Christina Ritchie was the box girl. In other words, yes. her image was on the cover of the The cassette. main thing that attracted me to the tape was the fact that it was in a cardboard sleeve, not a plastic sleeve, which usually means it's an NTSC uh, American release rather than any UK release. So it's definitely a foreign tape. I'm trying to remember that, uh, what that was like. I mean, didn't everything come in? Oh, they came in like a cardboard box? Yeah, in the American style. So all the tapes in the US would always be in cardboard boxes um, and you'd, you'd buy them in a little cardboard box and they'd be a sleeve and you just take it off the tape and it didn't give it any protection. But over here we used plastic because, you know, yeah. for some reason America has the, <laughs> the record of being bad for the environment. It wasn't, it was us, it's all our VHS tapes. And, and these were like little caskets that opened up, the, the plastic boxes over here, if I yeah, remember correctly. Yeah, they were. So everything in there was plastic. So when you see one in a cardboard box, you have to think, well, who's imported that? Because they clearly haven't bought it in the UK. Yeah. Um, it had Christina Ritchie on the front, but also it mentioned Ed Wood. And that that was a name to conjure with at this point in your well, life? Well, yeah, Ed Wood had just come out, the Tim Burton film. Yeah, and which so is a cool I was aware movie. of um, him as a filmmaker. and We'd watched, managed to watch Plan 9 from Outer Space in one film session. It was terrible. But <laughs> you, as a student, you're drawn to the terrible. You're, you're drawn to you're the drawn stuff. You're drawn to the Mavericks, yeah, right? Away from the mainstream and, and the, you want to watch yeah. things that are not... The hinterland. Yes. <laughs> right. And this... Tick the boxes, but also it had Christina Ritchie in it. So, you know, what more can you say? And Did thinking you... about it, I think this was after college. I think this was quite... Because I'm trying to think when this film came out. It was 19... Look, I, I know nothing about... The, all I know we about this movie is what now. you've told me about it and the yeah. fact that I've watched it. So, yeah, it, it was just an exciting find. Um, we loved it and it, it remained Did part you of watch our film-watching it project. almost immediately? Yeah. Because we, we picked up... I, uh, do you know what? I actually know that on the same day we picked up... I can't think of a name. You and your mate Mark, is this? Yeah, I think it was The Blob, um, the original, but it was, um, again, Forefront had done a widescreen release. And this was when no one had a widescreen telly, so we were all watching them on 4.3 tellies with massive 235 to 1 black bars across the top so you could barely see any pictures. I know, it's like like Ned Kelly is watching a movie. But Mark had a massive (laughs) telly. I mean, he'd invested well. He'd bought this huge TV, which took up most of his room. We probably need somebody to explain the Ned Kelly joke. (laughs) Metal helmet with a thin horizontal slit in it. (laughs) <laughs> I think that covers it Mick Jagger uh, well yeah he, he played him in a movie famous Australian outlaw wore a tin helmet yeah. there we go all I ever think of with Nick Kelly is Mick Jagger though. well all I ever think of is the Shel Silverstein soundtrack 
which is why I would have been in the top floor of Beano's which you're talking about mm. because it was basically above where most of the music was but we think that is where they kept the film soundtracks which would explain why uh, it was such a familiar place to me but it's the, it's the part of that story that I remember so you picked up this movie you loved it so this was what 25 years ago yeah, it got to be 20, 25 years ago. And so ever since then, you've just been waiting to spring this movie on me. Yeah, that, that was my Basically. goal in life. As a child, I watched <laughs> Doctor Who, and I thought, one day I'll show this script editor this film that hasn't come out yet. <laughs> it, no, but it's, it is a really great... The, the thing about it that I didn't expect is that it was fun. <laughs> I mean, it's silly fun. And I, the couple of times... It, in fact, there was only really one time when I felt it got a bit tedious and it was going on a bit, and that was the circus bit. Yes, well, I think by that stage, you're just shagged out. You've, you've had to sit through this relentless film, which doesn't give you a breathing point. And, and it's not a conventional narrative with the conventional rewards. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. No. And I, I tire toward the end of it. I was quite surprised when I rewatched it for this that I actually stuck with it all the way through. Oh, you actually bothered to sections. watch it again. Oh, good. Of course I did. Thank you. Um, <laughs> well, no, but I think the circus bit is inherently not that interesting. You know, it's just, I suppose, because the the circus is itself quite an exotic environment, and I quite like the fact that this is mostly about mundane environments with exotic things happening in them. It feels like they're layering the wild and wacky on you by that stage. Yeah, it's getting a bit too much. So, uh, But then we're very close to the end, aren't we? Do, I, I just think it's worth mentioning again the bus ride with the, the piece of licorice in it, because that was one of the highlights for me. Yeah. I, it's all I can remember. I can remember us watching that the first time and we were just howling with laughter and we wound it back about three times to watch it again. Um, Billy Zane is great and he's great in a sort of egoless way because he's, he's just throwing himself around, making himself look like a fool, but with fantastic timing and great physical grace. So he really does seem to have studied the, the, um, the towering giants of, of silent comedy like uh, Chaplin, um, Buster Keaton, there's somebody else like Harold Lloyd. Thank you. I'm hoping to do a Harold Lloyd film on one of these yeah. at some point. Well, I'd, I'd, I'm all up for that. So it's such a weird movie, lots of fun. Um, if you want to see Ron Perlman playing bagpipes in, in, a, in a pyramid, this is would be my first choice. That monk's film. Well, you probably thought it was all over, and I'm afraid it's just one little bit of business to get out of the way. Andrew and I keep forgetting to record our end title, so we would just like to thank both Joe Kramer for our title music and Mark Frost for our logo. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We appreciate it more than you'll know.